Tonight, Convocation Hall is an island upon which two opposite forces will meet. They have come together here to challenge each other's principles and to defend their own in a peaceful and scholarly fashion. And I'm, and I'm going to make sure. The two systems under debate are socialism and capitalism, brought together tonight for your scrutiny and judgment. The issue is uh, morality, not economics, not history. This means that the two systems will be defended on the grounds of uh, fundamental moral principles, not on the grounds of economic or historical statistics. This framework does not suggest that morality and economics are unrelated, but that economic realities presuppose moral foundations. The question for the evening is, socialism or capitalism, which is the moral system? And in the context of this question, which of these systems justifies George Orwell's concerns for our year 1984? To your left and my right, defending socialism are my two distinguished guests from Ottawa, Dr. Gerald Kaplan and Dr. Jill Vickers. Dr. Kaplan is a federal secretary to the New Democratic Party of Canada. He received his PhD in African Studies at the University of London in 1967 and his MA in Canadian History. He was a professor of history at the University of Rhodesia and of Third World Studies here at the University of Toronto through the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. His authorship includes numerous books and articles in the fields of Canadian history and Third World politics. For two years, Dr. Kaplan was director of the CUSO Nigeria program and returned from Africa to become senior advisor to Mr. Stephen Lewis, while Mr. Lewis was leader of the Ontario NDP. Prior to his acceptance of the position of federal secretary, Dr. Kaplan was director of the health advocacy unit of the Department of Public Health for the City of Toronto. Also to your left, defending socialism, is my distinguished guest, Dr. Jill Vickers, feminist, socialist, and professor of political science at Carleton University in Ottawa. She is associate director of the Institute of Canadian Studies and national secretary for the Association of Canadian Studies. Concerned with the rights and status of women, Dr. Vickers has written a number of books and articles on this subject, the latest of which is entitled In Pursuit of Patriarchy, A Political Theory of Sex and Power. She received her PhD from the London School of Economics in 1971, has been president of the Canadian Association of University Teachers, and was a federal candidate for the New Democratic Party in 1979. Active in the Canadian women's movement, she now serves on the board of the Canadian Research Institute for the Advancement of Women, and is secretary of the Canadian Women's Studies Association. To your right and my left, Defending Capitalism are my two distinguished guests, Dr. Leonard Peikoff and Dr. John Ridpath.
Dr. Peikoff is an author and professor of philosophy from New York City. He is the intellectual heir to the late Ayn Rand, philosopher and author, novelist, the creator of The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. Dr. Peikoff received his PhD in philosophy in 1964 under Sidney Hook at New York University. A native of Winnipeg, he has lived in New York since 1953 and was friend and intellectual associate of Ayn Rand for those 30 years. He has taught philosophy for 17 years at Hunter College, Long Island, and New York universities. His lecture courses on Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism are heard on tape in over 100 cities in North America. Dr. Peikoff's latest publication is The Ominous Parallels, The End of Freedom in America, and he is currently working on the unpublished works of Ayn Rand, the motion picture production of Atlas Shrugged, a new lecture series, a new lecture series on understanding objectivism, and a new book dealing with the philosophy of education in North America. Also to your right, defending capitalism is my distinguished guest, Dr. John Ridpath. Dr. Ridpath is an associate professor of economics and intellectual history at York University here in Toronto. He is a res <laughs> I'm glad to see the audience isn't split only on political lines. He is recipient of the prestigious award given by the Ontario Council of University Faculty Associations for outstanding contributions to university teaching. He received his Ph.D. in economics at the University of Virginia in 1974. His scholastic interests are political economy and basic economic theory, with special interest in the history of individual rights, the fundamental principles of Marxism, and the history of fundamental ideas and their impact on social change. Dr. Ridpath is an advisor to the National Foundation for Public Policy Development, a new Canadian think tank and he is a contributing speechwriter for Mr. Brian Mulroney, leader of the Federal Progressive Conservative Party of Canada. <laughs> Dr. Ridpath has spoken at numerous engagements, including the Federal Progressive Conservative Party Conference of Canada and the Thomas Jefferson Institute in San Diego. And now for the rules, <clears throat> which I am going to try to enforce. After 32 minutes in total of opening statements, the debaters will, will each have five minutes to remark on their opponent's position during one round of remarks totaling 20 minutes. These remarks will be addressed to the audience, to you, and not directed directly at their opponents. After this exchange, the debaters will have 20 minutes for closing statements, and then the House will rest for 10 minutes for the audience to form their questions and line up at the two microphones on the floor. The question and answer period will begin approximately at 9.30, we may be a few minutes after that, and continue until about 10.25. I will then close uh, the evening off with a brief comment. Well, it is now about 8.22, and the debate will now begin. Uh, I'll say that uh, we have agreed downstairs that I will give an audible signal with a bell. Right. Uh, 
five minutes into the first uh, eight-minute uh, speeches, and uh, one minute before the end of those, and for the shorter speeches, one minute before the end. And I'll try and be as fair as possible. It's too bad that I don't have a commercial to run at the end, uh, at the end of each. I can, uh, I'll just take one more second of your time to recall in the 60s interviewing a, a rabid socialist called Michel Chartrand in Quebec. He was a great talker and I was interviewing him live on television and I, I was getting the countdown for the commercial and I knew he wasn't going to stop talking and finally I got the 10 second, the 5 second and I had to grab him by the shoulders and I said, Mr. Chartrand, there's a commercial coming. And he raised his fist and he said, more goddamn capitalist propaganda. <laughs> In accordance with the prior agreement of the debaters, the capitalists will start off beginning with Dr. Peikoff. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Our topic this evening is capitalism versus socialism, which is the moral system. To answer, we have to know what is morality. What is the ethical standard we're going to use to judge a political system? We cannot just assume that everyone knows or it's in the Bible. We've got to state and validate our moral views at the outset because that's what's going to decide this debate. Now, our side holds that the standard of morality is man's life, that which man requires in order to sustain his life. Whatever man requires by his nature in order to survive, we regard as the good or the moral. Man's crucial tool of survival is his reason, his mind. The mind is our only means of dealing with reality, grasping facts, acquiring reliable knowledge. The mind is the basic source of every pro-life value. Take as one example the immense, unprecedented wealth that you see all around you in the West, the wealth created since the Industrial Revolution and capitalism. This wealth was not produced by muscles, but essentially by thought, the thought of the scientists who discovered new knowledge, of the inventors who used the knowledge to create new products, of the businessmen who used their minds to conceive and organize large-scale productive enterprises. Physical labor by itself is not what creates wealth. Every earlier age had an abundance of physical labor. What creates wealth and all human values is thought. That's point one. Morality means thinking, reasoning, exercising, and living by one's mind. Point two. Life requires selfishness. A living organism has to be the beneficiary of its own actions. It has to pursue specific objects for itself, for its own sake and survival. Life requires the gaining of values, not their loss. Achievement, not renunciation. Self-preservation, which is selfish, not self-sacrifice. If life is the standard, then morality cannot consist of sacrifice. Sacrifice is incompatible with the requirements of human life. And I mean here any kind of sacrifice, whether of oneself to others or of others to oneself. Many people think our choice is only sacrifice yourself to others, which they call altruism, or sacrifice others to yourself, which they call selfishness. 
cut your own throat for your neighbor's sake or cut their throats for your own sake. Either way, however, one thing remains the same. Somebody's throat gets cut, and the dispute is merely over who is to be the victim. If life is the standard, however, we should not be reduced to haggling over victims. We should oppose on principle the idea of throat cutting, in other words, of sacrifice. A selfish man, in the sense I advocate, does not sacrifice others to himself. Selfishness means each man is an end in himself, neither sacrificing himself to others nor others to himself. A man should live independently by his own mind and effort with no victims. Such a man uses his mind to the fullest and acts accordingly. In other words, I'm talking about rational self-interest. And in dealing with others, this means trading value for value by mutual consent to mutual advantage. It means each party respecting the sovereignty and the freedom of the others with no sacrifice either way. The ethics of social service, the ethics of self-sacrifice, is what is destroying the world today. Who is supposed to sacrifice and to whom according to the conventional theories that we hear everywhere? Are the incompetent supposed to sacrifice to the able? The parasites to the productive? Obviously no, the able and productive have nothing to gain from such a sacrifice. It's supposed to work in reverse, we're told. The able are to sacrifice to the incompetent, the productive to the parasites, the thinkers to the mindless, the healthy to the afflicted. In other words, the common denominator is the, the successful at living are to be penalized because they are successful in the name of rewarding the failures who get rewarded because they are failures. You could not invent a more anti-life code of morality. And the only practical effect it can have is to strike down all who succeed at life and thereby drag down the whole human race as you now see happening all over the world. Properly, if you are in trouble through no fault of your own, and I stress that this has to be a marginal issue. If everyone was in such trouble, the human race couldn't exist. If you are in such trouble, you have to depend on the voluntary generosity and private charity of those who are not in trouble. You have to ask for help as a favor, not as a right. You cannot use your trouble as a club over your neighbor's head. You have to recognize that other men have a right to exist too, that your suffering does not make them your slave. In other words, this is not the function of the government. What is? Well, Dr. Ridpath will be covering this point, but in essence, we hold the government's function is to protect each individual precisely from being sacrificed by others or to others to protect the independence of each man's mind, in other words, to protect his individual rights and leave every man free to act on his own judgment and for his own profit. And this is exactly what capitalism is. And I want to stress this, capitalism is not what we have in the West today. I'm talking about laissez-faire capitalism. In other words, the complete separation of state and economics, not government by pressure groups, not government favors for any group, whether businessmen, labor, farmers, or consumers. Not tariff protection, nor subsidies, nor franchises, nor any kind of handouts or welfare functions. I'm speaking of government as an impartial arbiter to prevent citizens from violating individual rights and otherwise hands off, which is what laissez-faire means.
Capitalism is the system that leaves man free to function. It leaves each individual free to live by his own mind and judgment, pursue his own goals, trade voluntarily with others. It's the system based on the morality of rational self-interest. Socialism is the opposite. However socialists may protest that the individual will benefit under their system, the fact remains socialists claim that the standard of value is not the life of the individual but the welfare of the group, whether they call it the collective, the community, the race, the nation, the proletariat. They hold that it's the duty of the individual to serve the group, to sacrifice for others, as decreed by the group's representative and spokesman, the all-powerful state. This viewpoint must mean ultimately the enslaving of the individual by the state, and therefore the crushing of thought, production, achievement, and finally of life itself. In the 19th century, when the West came closest to capitalism, the result was the highest standard of living and the longest interval of peace in mankind's history. The moral is the practical. As for socialism, look at the collapse of England, look at Soviet Russia, and remember that Nazi Germany meant National Socialist Germany. The results of socialism everywhere, uh, am I out of time? Yes, you are. Are as bad as they could have been predicted. Thank you. Dr. Vickers will lead off for the Socialists. Wow. Wouldn't it be fascinating if you came to a debate and one side said to the other, you got me. It's not going to happen tonight, ladies and gentlemen. My honorable opponent talked a whole lot about man. I want to start by talking about a woman. She happens to be my favorite woman. She happens to be my mother. And she always gives me good advice. Her advice for tonight was, Jill, remember someone else washed their underwear. And remember your manners. And since uh, you're playing the hometown team, get your thank yous out of the way at the beginning. And so I'd like to do that. I want to begin by thanking Peter for his kind introduction. I want to thank my colleagues for this opportunity to present an important issue to you. I want to thank a really super lady, Sandra Shaw, who pulled this all together. But most of all, I want to thank you for being here to listen to a debate. Now, Peter described me as a feminist and a socialist, and I'm both of those. And what I want to talk about tonight is why I think that socialism is the only truly moral system when it's built on a feminist base, and why I think that it is impossible for women in this country or anywhere else in the world to achieve with men a moral society built on the selfishness of laissez-faire capitalism. 
The issue we've gathered to talk about is the relative morality of the human orders involved in these two systems. I stress the word relative because morality is always a matter of human choice. If it were self-evident or clear-cut, we wouldn't need debates of this sort. I'd like us to begin by asking ourselves why the ideas which underlie capitalism or free enterprise still seem to have so much power so long after their point of creation. My honorable opponent, Lena Plekhoff, argued the case in pragmatic terms in his book. He wrote, historically, capitalism worked brilliantly. And yes, pragmatically, it's true, capitalism worked. But so did slavery, and so did, so did patriarchy, until they didn't work anymore. And both stopped working historically because the moral costs involved could no longer be borne of systems that work for the lucky few at the expense of the many who were dispossessed because of their color, their health, their age, their family heritage, or their sex. Now let me make my point as clearly as I can. Many economic systems based on moral injustice have worked brilliantly in productive terms, but all have eventually been discredited because their legitimating ideologies could no longer hide their immoral character. So it's really not very surprising that my worthy opponents will persuade people or try to persuade people of the morality of capitalism rather than its functionality. The ideas used to legitimize the activities of laissez-faire capitalism are very seductive because they express to all of us a childhood wish. And that childhood wish is that we could do what we want to do without having to even worry about hurting other people. And if only it were true, if only that childish wish were true and that there were some magic hand that would solve our moral dilemmas for us. Now, I think there's one other dimension of this seductive ideology that we have to explore, and that's the thesis that by being selfish, we're contributing to some positive good, the goal of freedom. Now, who can be opposed to freedom? Even if a small voice tells us that our dream of freedom, our childish dream of freedom, may only be achieved by a few on the backs of the many. And when we're young, the seductive lure of this call to self-interest is very clear. Come along, they say, join the parade. It's a nice parade. You too can enjoy life in the fast lane. And as a young woman, I thought feminists should demand equal rights to join that parade in the fast lane. I thought that being free meant to pursue my self-interest. There was a terrible temptation to reject those values of nurturance and compassion, cooperation and commitment to the community which women have traditionally upheld. Uh, and I don't want to fly under false colors, it probably wasn't virtue that saved me from joining that parade. I know for a fact it was the realization that this freedom parade was bedecked with signs that said very few women need apply. 
One of the most devastating effects of technological capitalism, I think, has been its numbing of the powers of imagination, especially with regard to our ability to envisage new human and communal relationships. I'm a feminist because I feel endangered by this kind of society. I feel endangered when I realize that so-called free enterprise makes billions of dollars each year out of the pornography industry, which desensitizes the men I care about, including my sons, to the degradation of women's bodies. I feel endangered by the knowledge that those in charge are willing to spend billions of dollars on weapons to defend their rights to this vaunted notion of freedom while threatening my life, my children's lives, your lives, and the very life of this planet. And it's very tempting for the feminists to say a plague on both your houses. I want no part of this corrupt male stream political order. But that would be a fundamental error. The point is that the ideal of socialism is not only a form of government or a manner of managing the economy. It is a way of life, of living and of associating, which balances self-interest with concern and compassion with others. It believes with that awful old sexist Jean-Jacques Rousseau that we're a curious species equally capable of self-love and love for others. And so I'm both a socialist and a feminist because I believe that morality requires a community capable of balancing our childhood dreams of self-assertion with our grown-up sense of compassion and responsibility with others. For me, there's no other strategy that will work and there's no other truly moral choice. Thank you. The uh, second speaker for the capitalists is uh, Dr. Ridpath. Thank you. Capitalism versus socialism. What is the moral social system? There really are only two central issues in this debate. The first issue is to argue for the moral code underlying capitalism or underlying socialism. Dr. Peacock has concerned himself with the issue of the moral code underlying capitalism, the code of rational egoism, and he has shown that this moral code is validated by man's nature as a rational being and by man's life as his ultimate value. I want to note that in doing this, we have not asserted our moral code, that we have gone to the pains of arguing for our moral code on the basis of man's nature. We have, in fact, done what the debate topic demands so far in making a case for the morality of our system, and I look forward to our opponents doing the same. The second issue in this debate is the application of this moral code to the question, what is the moral social system? And that is what I'm going to address myself to. In moving 
from the moral code to the question of the proper society for man, the first point to make is that to live, which means to use his mind and to act on the basis of his thinking, man in a social setting needs one thing, freedom. And this, in essence, means freedom from the initiation of physical force or fraud by others against him. This freedom is man's fundamental social requirement if he is to be able to live by his mind. It therefore is true that it is moral to be free. The initiation of physical force is the primary social evil. A social system built on recognizing the value of freedom is the moral social system. Any social system adopting and institutionalizing the initiation of physical force in any way for any purpose is by that fact an evil social system and an enemy of man's life. Now, let us consider the state, the government, as a social institution. What is the essence of this institution? The government is not merely a set of laws. It is not a cooperative organization. It is not like an insurance company. It isn't a charity. The government, i.e. the state, is properly defined as that social institution, the only social institution that has a legal monopoly over the use of force in society. It is society's only legally authorized social institution. Now combine this fact with man's need for freedom, with the morality of ensuring that men are free. And what do you get? You get the conclusion that the moral government will use its monopoly on force only to retaliate against those who initiate force. You get a government that seeks not to violate man's need to be free, but to protect man's need to be free. You get a government whose only morally legitimate function is to protect the individual's rights to life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness. You get the only moral social system that there is, pure, undiluted, laissez-faire capitalism. The principle of recognizing individual rights is our way of safeguarding man's need to be free from force. Rights protect man in his freedom to act in pursuit of his life. Rights ensure that men will be free to think, free to act, free to enjoy the fruits of their actions. Rights protect men from each other. They certainly don't enslave men to each other. Thus, there can be no such thing as rights to the property of others or rights to be the beneficiary of the unchosen actions of others. There are no rights to food, to shelter, to health, to education, and the like, precisely because the such so-called rights are, in fact, coercive claims on the property and the actions of others. These rights are really a wholesale assault on the very notion of rights itself and are mindful of George Orwell's slogans such as war is peace, knowledge is ignorance, and freedom is slavery, of which I'll have a little more to say later. The moral society, therefore, is the society where the government stands ready to retaliate when someone's rights are violated, but it never itself initiates force and violates its citizens' rights for any purpose. The proper function of the government is to supply the courts, the police, and the military, and that's it. This is precisely what capitalism, properly defined, is. Capitalism is that social system based on the total uncompromising defense of individual rights.
Capitalism is the only social system in which all property is privately owned. Capitalism is the only such social system in which men resolve their differences and pursue their individual ends exclusively through rational persuasion, voluntary agreement, and free trade. Capitalism is the only social system in which the initiation of physical force and fraud are abolished from human affairs. Capitalism is the, socialism, the, the social system which recognizes the social needs of man's nature. Capitalism, therefore, as I said in my quote for this debate, is the only moral, productive, and benevolent social system that there is. Such a social system has never yet fully existed. In 19th century North America, it was the most closely approximated. In the 19th century, the principle that men would not initiate physical force against each other in their social relationships was more closely approximated than in any other time in human history. In the 20th century, all vestiges of this principle have been totally swept away in the altruist welfare state orgy of our times. There has never been pure capitalism, and there certainly isn't any capitalism in the 20th century. Nevertheless, we do not advocate capitalism because of our looking at the past. We advocate capitalism while looking ahead, while looking ahead to a free, prosperous, and civilized future. I think you can see why we are proud to appear here tonight as advocates of capitalism as the only moral system for man. Thank you. The second, the second speaker for the Socialists and the last in this opening round is Dr. Kaplan. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. I wanted to join my colleague Jill Vickers in, in thanking Sandy Shaw and her gang for, for organizing this, uh, this fascinating but not, as I'll tell you in a moment, quite unique evening. You now today know Sandy Shaw as a great organizer of important debates. Someday you'll know her as a great Canadian sculptor. Wait for it and remember the name. It's true. Um, secondly, I want to thank my parents for bringing the rest of my family for that small ripple of applause that our side is getting. <laughs> I asked my 11-year-old friend Jason Moore to bring some of his kids to applaud for us, and I'm sorry he didn't because we could have had those seats filled and it would have helped my morale a lot. But still, we're going to take you on tonight. You know, it's an important historical evening. It's not the first time, it's the second time. 25 years ago, on this very stage, I guess I was in third year, and I don't know who sponsored it, David Lewis and William Buckley performed. Perform is certainly the word. Um, David Lewis, then, as always, the great voice of, of socialist passion and indignation in Canada, and William Buckley, fay and insouciant, newly up from Yale, his great... His, <laughs> His great claim to fame, his, uh, his charming and noble voice of, of approval for Joe McCarthy and all his works. And I want to tell you, with his wit, with his wit, he gave David Lewis a run for his money that night. And I'm only sorry his successors tonight are not doing the same thing, of course. Let's, um, 
I also want to say that I'm not here in my official capacity as a, as a paid hack of the New Democratic Party, and I say that not defensively, not because of Jim Laxer, not because of 15% in the polls. I'm not, I'm not embarrassed about it. I, I, they're difficult times, but I mean, it's my job. Uh, but I want you to know I'm here in a private capacity, even though I do get a derisory sum of money for doing that job from time to time. Let's talk about the three social systems. We've talked about two. Let's talk about uh, a third for a second that are at the essence here. And let's talk about morality, which simply means how real people live in the real world. And I feel at some disadvantage now that now that John Ridpath has explained that his capitalism has never existed, does not now exist, he does not know when it will exist, and therefore, <laughs> and therefore can show categorically how it is bound to be the best system in every way. I have some, I have some greater constraints. We have a little evidence on our side that, that's more ambiguous. Democratic socialism is, as Jill Victor suggested, not a narrow ideology. It, it began as an unbounded faith, as a vision of a, of a great future, as, a, as almost a religion that said, this is what the human being is capable of, that there is a way of organizing our world and believing certain things that will suppress that black part of the human soul, that will elevate that best in the human soul that's not always found in our world. And that's what socialism was going to do, and, and we can trace it proudly from the Old Testament and the Sermon on the Mounts, all through the diggers and the utopians, through European history, and it's a proud tradition, and it's, a, it's an ethical proposition, and it talks, well, we're in a problem here, it talks just the way they talk. It says that people are at the center of things. Now, they said that people are at the center of things, but I heard them ending up saying that property was at the center of things, that material was at the center of things, that wealth was at the center of things, not for socialism. The touchstone is people and people always, and the ends are clear, simple and clear. One is a belief in an egalitarian society, a belief in the moral equality of all human beings, and therefore a system that function that way regardless of background or regardless of each of our accidental attributes. Secondly, it's a, it's a philosophy that calls passionately for social justice, for the fight forever and forever for civil rights for groups and for civil liberties for individuals. Thirdly, it's a philosophy that calls for economic and social security, not just a larger cake, but a fairer distribution of the cake. My old Polish uncle used to talk about stomach socialism. Don't give me all your fancy ideas, he said. Unless people are full in their stomach, they're not going to be able to talk about dignity. And so socialists, socialists honed in on the welfare state and made that, made that proudly one of the great contributions of this civilization in the era we've lived through. And finally, peace. Now, I know some of you will say that we are being self-righteous that there are even some on their side who believe in peace. Well, there are people who... <laughs> there are people who espouse laissez-faire and people who espouse free enterprise, and they speak of peace, and they include the people who move back and forth between the Pentagon and the American arms movement, and they include Ronald Reagan and, and his trillion-dollar arms budget. I know that all of us believe in peace in the same way. I don't want to talk about communism because it's not what we're here to do. We do not believe in any socialism that is not democratic. If it's not democratic, it's not socialism. A tyrant who, who calls himself a socialist is only a tyrant 
and anyone who thinks he's on our side or she's on our side and doesn't believe that is not on our side. But let's talk about the issue for tonight. Let's talk about capitalism. Let's say what it is. I, I agree with, uh, with our colleagues. I agree. It's about inequality. It's about the rights of property. It's about the right to seek profit. It's the right, about the right to exploit others in order to seek profits. It's, it's, seek, it's, about, it's about accepting the role of wealth and property as a, as, a, as a gauge of power, of your power and your status. You remember a wonderful old saw from a, a French writer named Anatole France a hundred years ago that that in the, in, the, in the sight of the law, rich and poor alike could sleep under the, under the bridges of Paris. This is the, uh, the liberty, I think, that we get from our friends. Look what they say themselves. Look what they say themselves. They've heard it here. They've written it. John Ridpath says that laissez-faire capitalism is the only social system that's based on the recognition of individual rights. Peikoff, Peikoff, I'm sorry, the only alternative to tyranny that's ever been discovered. Peikoff actually says that the United States is soon going to become like Nazi Germany. Well, Ronald Reagan said last night, last night that the United States is back. Now, what's it back to? Maybe he thinks it's back to Nazi Germany, but even I don't accuse him of that. There is a, there is a hyperbole that, that, that I can't deal with. There is a meanness that I can't deal with. There are a series of contradictions that I can't deal with. They talk about free enterprise, but every free enterprise government in the world regulates its system on behalf of business, which always and invariably b benefits. They talk about laissez-faire, and they are part... Hold on, please. They talk about laissez-faire, and they are part of a moral majority that wants to dictate to us what we do about divorce, and about birth control, and about homosexuality, and about abortion, and they want to interfere with our private life. They talk about liberty, they talk about liberty, and they talk about liberty. And through all the rhetoric, here's what I hear. I hear McCarthyism. I hear the problem of the Japanese Canadians. I hear civil rights in the United States. I hear the padlock law in Quebec. I hear the War Measures Act in, in Canada. I hear the question of labor rights. I hear the question of torture of citizens in Central America by those who talk about individual rights, and I want to tell you that the argument for them is always made by the left, and the right. argument right. for the oppressor is always made by the right. We'll pursue it later, so much for their liberty. here is the sound of pencils to the right and left of me and we're now going to find out what they've been coming up with we'll follow the same order for the rebuttals uh, Peacock, Vickers, Ridpath and Kaplan five minutes each uh, led off by Dr. Peacock. Well I would need five hours to even comment on the number of absolutely fantastic charges made without any content or foundation. And I want to... You're taking my five minutes away from me. Don't applaud, please. You're taking away precious seconds here. 
I want to make a few more points. I'm going to try to stay on the topic of the debate, which is morality and not Central America. <laughs> there is no justification for egalitarianism in morality, nor did our opponents offer any. There is no reason why every man should be equal to every other in anything except equality before the law. People differ in their intelligence, in their morality, in their honesty, in their conscientiousness. And if you talk about social justice as one of them did, justice consists of gaining what you have earned by your own efforts, not in an equality which requires somebody else's production to be taken from him and uh, given to you when you didn't earn it. Uh, with regard to the uh, claim that uh, we are concerned with property rather than people, we deny such a dichotomy. People cannot exist without property. They're not ghosts. A system which preserves human freedom has to preserve the right to the physical goods that you yourself have produced. Otherwise, you can be free in heaven, but on this earth, you have to take orders from the government. So if you're talking about freedom, that has to include the freedom to own property. And that means private property. If I have to get the consensus of the people in this room, let alone of the whole country's government, before I can act, I am a slave. And any communal ownership of property necessarily means the negation of all rights. It means dictatorship, and it is of absolutely no difference whether it's achieved by majority rule or by a minority coup. If I am not in the majority that voted, once they establish this system, I am just as much enslaved D doesn't make any difference how many people voted for that government. So I don't even recognize such a phenomenon as democratic socialism. Once it's socialism, that's the end of anybody's power except uh, the power of the government. Uh, there's many misrepresentations of our view. Our opponents seem to confuse us with the moral majority uh, in the United States. Um, we do not advocate governmental interference in abortion. We do not advocate governmental censorship of pornography, although apparently one of the opponents seems to suggest that she is in favor of that. We do not advocate, we are not, quote, conservatives in the sense that we want government control of the mind. We want government out only for the purpose of protecting individual rights as defined by Dr. Ridpath. So don't confuse us with Jerry Falwell, please. As to the question, uh, the lucky few versus the many who are dispossessed and the constant idea that capitalism is a system of exploitation, that is nonsense. Wealth has to be created. It doesn't grow on trees and there's a limitless amount. One person's creation is not taken from another. It is a Marxist myth that you get rich at the expense of the poor. If they're poor, how did you get the money from them to begin with. Uh, one of my, I'm just making these scatter shots because I need 12 hours to just to make a dent on how many falsehoods you heard. Uh, one of my opponents interchangeably equated cooperation and commitment to the community. Now commitment to the community is a very dangerous thing. Is that the end or I have a minute? <laughs> Commitment to the community is what any dictator advocates because the question immediately becomes, who is the voice of the community? The community doesn't speak with one voice unless you have Adolf Hitler or his equivalent. Commitment to the community means obedience to the Fuhrer. 
And freedom means individualism. It means you are committed to your own life and you are not a serf of the community. That is an entirely different thing from cooperation, which term she used. Cooperation is peaceful human agreement to do something together. The difference between cooperation under capitalism and under socialism is under capitalism, if you don't want to cooperate, you go your own way. Under socialism, you have a gun held to your head. That is what the difference is because that's what the function of government is. As far as William Buckley is concerned, please do not confuse us with that entity. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Vickers? Well, I guess I've just been declared a ghost since I neither have property nor think that my human dignity is bound up in having property. I don't think your human dignity is bound up in having property either. I'd like to bring this debate uh, down to reality to Canada in the latter half of the 20th century and talk a little bit about the Canadian context in which we're living because I find uh, some of my worthy opponent's observations uh, from the planet Mars or from the 19th century somewhere else. I cannot believe that there is more than a handful, I hope I'm right, in this room who genuinely believe that paying their OHIP payments is some kind of slavery. I cannot believe that most Canadians at this point in the 20th century believe that the dismantling of Medicare would be anything other than an immoral act. And it seems to me we have been enormously fortunate in Canada in that we have had some small, important, practical experiences with socialism as a community. Now, I know it's true that a lot of Americans think that all Canadians are socialists under the skin. Uh, I, I hesitate. Uh, I certainly urge you to believe that Pierre Trudeau isn't one of them. Nonetheless, even the Conservative Party of Canada and Mr. Mulroney considers, in his own words, that Medicare is at the basis of the morality of the Canadian community. And I am proud as a Canadian to join with Mr. Mulroney and with the Liberal leadership and with my own party in defending against those who would tear us back to a time when if you were poor, or if you were black, or you were Indian, or you were the wrong sex, or the wrong heritage, if you got sick, you died. I think we have to understand a much more normal political spectrum in which we have some fundamental agreements on the morality of cooperation, and on the morality of social welfare to a significant degree. I think we believe that education, that health, that housing, and that a number of support systems for those who desperately need them are that which we owe to one another, not in any sense out of slavery or coercion, 
but because we are fellow Canadians, because we live in the same community, because we are brothers and sisters. Well, I hope when Medicare gets rolled down, you don't get sick. We've heard a lot about rationality. Now, I'm very much in favor of rationality, but I always like to ask whose rationality is being applied to the situation. Is it the rationality of self-interest? Is it the rationality of power? Is it the rationality that those who have impose on those who would like to have? Mr. Paykoff asked how you could indeed get rich off the backs of the poor since they didn't have any money to start out with. How do the poor stay poor? How do the poor continue? How do they continue side by side with you in this community if indeed you cannot be construed as in some sense or another living off them? How many of the men in this room live off the unpaid labor of their wives? Is that not a key point? Thank you. Dr. Uh, Dr. Ridpath. Dr. Vickers has said that she wants to bring this debate down to reality. And by that, she really means she wants to bring this discussion down to an unphilosophical level. Well, I have news for you. This is a philosophical topic. You were invited here to discuss philosophy. You were invited here to discuss the morality behind your views. And I'm expecting you to do that, and the audience is expecting you to do that. I'd like to say that this is the fifth year in a row that I've debated as socialists around this time of the year in a format similar to this. And I've had it with you people. I really have had it with you people. Why it is that I can't get into an intellectual and philosophical debate with you people uh, escapes me. Uh, every time I come into a debate, I'm faced with euphemisms, sarcasms, ad hominem arguments, vagueness, evading the point, appealing to emotion, and I'm simply fed up with this. <laughs> For you to come in here and intimate that we are appealing to childish wishes, that we are offering seductive ideas, uh, that we are uh, that we are advocating some utopian un future in the unknown, un uh, some unknown time in the future that some of us, but certainly not the rightists, believe in peace, that we are actually advocates of McCarthyism, that we are advocates of torture, that is totally inexcusable. We have been standing here arguing for the repudiation, the initiation of physical force in human affairs. 
How can you say that we are an advocate of torture, McCarthyism, and all of these things? Are you not hearing what we're saying? Now, this debate is a serious on a serious issue. And the essence of the issue, as far as I see it, with regards to socialism versus capitalism, capitalism properly defined as we've defined it, is the role of the initiation of physical force in human affairs, which you have not addressed yourself to. The truth of the matter is the state is a coercive institution, and you, as socialists, are advocating the coerced imposition of your view of the beautiful society on everybody here. That's the truth. You have the gall to have some view of the way men should live and be prepared to force it on everybody through the use of the state. And that is totally uh, immoral, and that is the issue that we are discussing here, and you have failed to address that issue completely. This is not, this is not entertainment. This is a serious issue. This debate is over serious ideas and you are not really prepared to discuss the issues on the level we're talking about. We have gone to considerable pains to present the argument behind our moral view. Save it for the question period. Just for those of you who are commenting that we are advocating fascism, I'll say it one more time. Capitalism, as we are advocating it, is a social system which would repudiate the use of force by anyone, including the government, and that is clearly the moral opposite of any fascist system. Now, the truth is that capitalism as a social system acknowledges the nature of man. It acknowledges the fact that men have to act in order to live, that men have to think before they act, that men deserve the fruits of their efforts after they act, that men deserve the right to own their own property. Capitalism as a social system, in recognizing the nature of man, produces a social system or would produce a social system when fully adopted, which would, in fact, be truly benevolent and truly productive and would bring to all of men, all men, a truly uh, prosperous future. The argument for capitalism is the argument for individualism, the argument for rational self-interest, and the argument for rejecting the barbarism of solving our social problems through the use of coercive institution. Capitalism and moral grounds is completely the opposite of socialism, of fascism, of communism, of totalitarianism, of Attila the Hun, and every other form of status society that you can think of. In that sense, capitalism stands alone, advocating a, a free society a society where men reject this as against all of the other versions of society that adopt the use of force in one form or another. Thank you. Kaplan will deliver the last rebuttal. I, I feel kind of terrible. I've ruined John's evening. I, I, I didn't mean to. Uh, I'm sorry he's disappointed. Jill and I tried, and I'm sorry we couldn't satisfy him. Uh, we actually have a different way of looking at it, John Ridpath. We actually think that your words are not all that counts, John Ridpath. 
we actually think you can test most of your words in practice and they don't come out as well. So don't tell us that we're not dealing with the issue. The issue is what happens with words when they get applied to people. And the mythology is universal of what you promise, but the reality is the opposite. And don't tell us that you're not associated with the moral majority, you're not associated with Bill Buckley. You are part of a crowd that talks about individual enterprise. <laughs> you talk about laissez-faire. You talk about unregulated capitalism. And so does this large group, and they have important things in common. One of the things they have in common, as you say and all of them say, it comes down from us, from Max Weber to Friedrich Hayek, his book, The Road to Serfdom, that any state regulation leads ipso facto to, to the regulation of human beings, to an absence of freedom. Good, clap, that's what it says. But the reality happens not to be that. The reality happens to be that the most prosperous, that the happiest, that the most generous period in human history has been in Western Europe, in North America, in the 25 or 30 years since the Second World War, precisely because the state introduced social services which made more people's lives more decent, more, more, more livable than they'd ever been before. And that's... You dare denounce us for, for, for the evasions and the falsehoods. You talk about socialist governments that rule with a gun. I take it you mean British Columbia. I think, take it you mean Howard Pauley in Manitoba. I, think, I take it you mean the British Labour Party and the German Social Democratic Party and the Swedish Social Democratic Party, all of which, as you know, came to power by force, have remained in power by the gun, and have oppressed and enslaved their citizens. Well, forgive me, forgive me. I'm not ashamed of it even with this audience tonight. It's the greatest contribution socialism has made to this society. We moved. We moved the parameters of the debate to the left. So people who before the war talked about capitalism in this way no longer can afford to do it. The issue became not whether there ought to be a welfare state, but what the size of it was going to be. We won that major way of accepting the state's responsibility for taking care of those who, for no fault of their own, couldn't hack it, were underprivileged, were handicapped, couldn't make it. And we forced people to say that was the state's responsibility because the state alone could handle it. That's how it happened. And what's so terrible about what's happening today, what's so terrible about what's happening in the United States and in a tiny way here and with Margaret Thatcher is that these people are moving the debate back to the right where you can speak the unspeakable. Where, where John Ridpath on a, on a TV program can say that, that it is coercion, it is enslavement, it is force for the government of Canada to provide welfare assistance for pregnant teenage kids or handicapped. <laughs> I have, don't you ho 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 me, I have the notes here, I have the tape here, and I will play it for you. He believes that, he said it tonight. And he, and hold on, he acknowledged that. So please don't laugh at me.
it's really, it's really an easy decision. It's really a quite easy decision. You, you, you talk about free enterprise, and you talk about laissez-faire, you talk about rights of property, and what you do everywhere in the world in the event is you, is you oppress, and you take the side of the privileged, and the wealthy, and the predator, against the side of the wretched, and the destitute, and the vulnerable, and you, you, you take the perpetrators, and you turn them into the innocent victims, and you take the victims, and you claim that they are somehow the enemy, and you do it time and time again. You introduce, you introduce a simple division between whether you're going to be mean about how the world runs or caring, and I think it's an easy answer. We've now reached the time for closing statements. The, uh, the order of uh, speakers is uh, Peacock, Ridpath, Vickers, and Kaplan, but the time is going to be divided into 10-minute uh, segments allotted to each side. I won't time the individual speakers. I will ring the bell at 5 minutes, 9 minutes, and uh, stand up at, at the 10-minute mark. Uh, Dr. Peacock, would you like to lead off for the capitalists? I just want to say that I regard the welfare state as an abomination, as morally evil. I do not base morality on the Sermon on the Mount, and I do not put forth a moral case in terms of the lame, the halt, and the blind. I say, if you are talking about what mankind requires, what man or woman requires by her nature and his nature to survive, you have to first say, what does the healthy, unafflicted individual require? Because the weak, the sick, the helpless, by definition, cannot survive on their own. You cannot shackle those who are able to function, allegedly in the name of helping the weak, because then you will wipe out the whole human race. So if, quote, compassion is your value, compassion for those who can't survive on their own, the first thing that you should do is take the shackles off the people who are able to think and produce and create the wealth that everyone requires to survive, including the weak. What the welfare state does is exactly the reverse. This shift in direction that Dr. Kaplan talked about is precisely a gradual tightening of the noose around the necks of those who are able to produce. And the result of this is increasing economic crisis. We're oscillating just the way Nazi Weimar Germany did between a potential runaway inflation and a potential depression. We have hordes of unemployed just as they did as a result, not of capitalism, but of all the government controls in the economy. If we have poor, and in the West, poverty is a very relative thing if you go to the East and see what poverty is. But such poverty as we have here is essentially caused by this very glorious welfare state which is undermining and making productivity impossible. Moreover, this is not a stationary thing. Every control requires further controls. It produces certain dislocations which necessitate still further controls. You can check that by looking at history. Every single decade, it doesn't make any difference what party is in office, is, is in office has more and more controls to try to cover the consequences of the preceding controls. And there's only one end of that road, as there was in Weimar, Germany, and that is total control. 
this is the end result of the welfare state, which is only a transition point in history. Now, having said all that, I nevertheless despair of arguing on this topic because I do not think you can argue about politics by itself. Politics is not a primary. Whether you are a socialist or a capitalist depends upon basic philosophic questions. Our opponents have already uh, appealed to the Sermon on the Mount and by implication have rejected reason in the suggestion that rationality is subjective and that one person's rationality is not somebody else's. So they have an entirely different philosophic framework, so it's no wonder that they are socialists. <laughs> it also happens to be the case that the thing is entirely rigged against us because the universities in this country and in the United States are entirely skewed in favor of the two ideas that socialism depends on, namely the rejection of reason and the insistence on self-sacrifice. That absolutely dominates. You can take the typical college graduate and see it very easily by asking him what he thinks and as soon as you say anything, he will say, well, it's all a matter of opinion, who can know anything, there's no absolutes, etc. In other words, he's been brainwashed to conclude his mind is helpless. Except, although you can know nothing, he knows one thing, it's bad to live for yourself, you've got to live for the society, for the poor, or whatever. How he knows that is presumably by revelation. <laughs> now, in, in my book, uh, The Ominous Parallels, I point out that this exact same intellectual situation existed in Weimar Germany and Hitler counted on it and cashed in on it specifically on this kind of unreason and this kind of intense commitment to self-sacrifice on the part of the Germans and uh, the result was that socialism triumphed Nazism is socialism it's one form of socialism and it, it is that in theory and it was that in practice let us define our terms. I, I, I think we would have had a definition of socialism by now. Government control over property. Are you going to tell me that in Nazi Germany there was such a thing as private property and free independent action? If so, you have never been there. You don't know what you're talking about. Only for the rich. Now, Hitler, Hitler was able to rise to power in Germany because he had no opposition. He had his liberals and conservatives just as we have in this continent. I'll just be, can I take one of you a minute? <laughs> his, the liberals in Germany at the time said, let's have more economic controls. The conservatives said, no, let's have more intellectual controls by the government. And Hitler said, you're both right, let's have total control. <laughs> The only antidote to this development is somebody who says, let's not have government control. Let us stand up for the rights of the individual as absolute to his life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. Regardless, he has no obligation except to live as a rational being. If, if we can't establish that, there is no hope. So my concluding remark is this. If you go to college, I don't ask that many professors teach reason and selfishness. I think a fair ratio would be one professor advocating reason and selfishness to 200 advocating unreason and socialism. If you would get your faculties to allow that ratio, just one to 200, I would have no fear for the future of the country. But unfortunately, they will not allow it. Okay.
topic is, which is the moral social system? <laughs> we, we have tried to, to present an argument in defense of man's moral right to live his own life. We have tried to present an argument in defense of man's need for freedom, for man's need to have his rights respected. We have tried to present our argument, therefore, for capitalism as the social system which does this, as the only social system that offers man this, that offers man the opportunity to live his life, and therefore the only moral social system. Had our opponents bothered to try and argue for their, the moral basis for their system, they would have had to have argued for man's duty to serve others, for altruism. They would have had to have argued for the moral appropriateness, and Professor Kaplan has admitted to this, the moral appropriateness of coercing men into the good life as the socialists see it. They would have argued for socialism as the social system where the government has the power to force people to live the good life. The issues, therefore, I think, are clear. We have argued for laissez-faire. They are arguing for state management. We have argued for the state as the protector of individual rights. They have argued for the state as our parent. We have argued for individual rights. They have argued for sacrifice to the group. We are arguing that we are not our brother's keeper and they have to morally rest on the claim that we are our brother's keeper. So now the issues are out and you must think for yourself. If you want to know my basic reason for agreeing to engage in this debate, it is because of my belief in the power of ideas. Ideas count. History is determined by ideas. Ideas will determine our future. True ideas will lead us ahead. False ideas will kill us. The Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, the 19th century, the creation of the United States of America were all products of ideas. So as uh, this is also true for Nazi Germany, for Communist Russia, for Communist China, for slavery, for slave labor camps. These also are ultimately the results of ideas. I must say that I literally believe that the ideas that our opponents have propounded would, if followed, lead to poverty, slavery, and the destruction of civilized life on this planet. On the other hand, I believe that our ideas, if followed, can lead us to a prosperous and happy future. Thank you very much. Dr. Vickers will lead off the closing statements for the socialists. I wasn't aware that this was going to come into a debate as to who owns philosophy. Um, I'm willing to concede some share, but I'm not going to hand in my philosopher's badge just yet. Philos, philosophy, desire a love of the truth. Truth, it seems to me, does not just exist, as you have been told, in the idea or the written word or the book titles that can be dropped. I also believe very strongly that by your deed shall you be known. It seems to me it's important to look rather closely at the deeds of social democracy as they have been implemented here and there in bits and pieces in this country in this century.
It seems to me that that has a truth that we should be pursuing every bit as much as my opponent's desire to define my philosophy for me. I believe in reason, but I believe in emotion too. And I'm not afraid to say that I think that human beings who believe only in reason should not be entrusted with the running of governments or the teaching of students. I don't believe that altruism is only to be defined in these terms of self-sacrifice, but I do believe in self-sacrifice. Not as an exclusive virtue, I certainly don't go around day in, day out saying, how can I self-sacrifice next? I'm very much an old Aristotelian, and that I share a great deal with Leonard Plakoff. I don't accept that Aristotle's... <laughs> I don't accept his, his defense of slavery, Aristotle's that is. I don't accept some of his social programs, but I certainly accept his belief in moderation. All things in moderation, and that of course also includes self-sacrifice. I define what I consider social democracy to be, and a great deal of that definition came out of my experience in this country with those small experiments we have proceeded with. And it seems to me that this is a false dichotomy. Self-sacrifice, altruism, selfishness. I tried to say that at the beginning in talking about relative morality, because that is what we are talking about. I know that a lot of people would like there to be absolutes written up there in the sky, written up there on stone, but there are not. There are values that we can reason about with one another. And for me, the chief value about which we must reason is how much self-interest we can be expected to be allowed to assert. And I'm a self-asserting person. Most feminists are and how much commitment to others, how much responsibility for others we should expect ourselves to give. I say expect ourselves. I have never felt coerced by my government in the context of providing for others. Nor do I just leave it to tax day, nor do most of you. Canadians are among the most generous people in the world. And indeed, that is, that is probably why it has been possible in this country to get away from the stereotype dichotomies and to see how much, as generous Canadians, we are willing to give to others. And sometimes we say to ourselves, we went a little too far there. Okay? Maybe we better pull it back here, and maybe university students ought to pay a bit more for their education and the taxpayers a little less. And we have been able, within the rubric of a social consensus that exists in this country, and I believe it despite some of the things I've heard this evening, to balance, to say, yeah, we want to get as much as we can, we want to assert ourselves, but we believe we are members of a community, and as members of, of a community, we will spend some time and some property and some of our fabric and some of our energy and some of our love on those people around us. 
want to go back to the challenge from uh, Professors Ridpath and Peacock. I want to talk about the logic, the implications of their of their rhetoric, their positions on individual liberty and the defense of property and laissez-faire. Have a quotation if you bear with me. The, their leaders do not believe in unions or in welfare economics or in suffrage. Their basic premise is that government exists to protect the entrepreneur from undesirable inter interference by other actors so that the accumulation of capital can proceed without restraint. Not so far, I think, from some of the comments that uh, the other side have made or written elsewhere. It happens to be about the government of El Salvador, and it happens to be a new book out of the University of North Carolina. Uh, it was said earlier that El Salvador and Central America are not part of our debate tonight. Forgive me. My socialism can go that far, and what Ronald Reagan does there is part of my socialism. In El Salvador, a reactionary military clique dependent on the United States for its survival tortures and kills at least 100 citizens each week in order to create a climate of fear in which it can stay in power. This gang shares its power with 14 of the richest families in El Salvador who own all there is in that country, together with American business interests, and together they've reduced the majority of people in that poor country to a subhuman existence. The United States, President Reagan, in the names of all that he believes in, non-interference in other countries, laissez-faire, individual liberty, and the concern for human beings, sends arms and advisors to these thugs in the name of those freedoms, and shares in the murder of those who are rebelling against such unimaginable brutality and suppression that they obviously must be surrogates of the Soviet imperialist power. When you read... Each time I read another unimaginably horrible story of a, of a piece of torture of some poor peasant in El Salvador or in Guatemala, you forgive me, I am, Buster. Whenever you talk about it, what you're talking about is the logic, the inexorable logic of the philosophy that the large-scale right espouses, the philosophy that says somehow liberty is found in property rights, that the rights of capital take precedence over those of humanity, and that selfishness, however sophistically defined, is morally superior to a humanist egalitarian ethic. We reject it. I have two final quotes, if you will forgive me. One is from a hero of mine who I, I mentioned earlier, David Lewis, the prophet of Canadian socialism. The modern democratic socialist David Lewis wrote in 1956 should proclaim his aims loudly and passionately, as I hope we're doing tonight. The equality of man and woman is the socialist watchword. The moral struggle against injustice and inequality is the socialist duty. To be a strong and powerful voice for the common man against the, the abuse and oppression of a privileged minority is the socialist function. And to forge an ever finer and ever higher standard of values and a richer pattern of life and behavior is the socialist dream. I want to say it in less highfalutin terms. I met last year in the Yukon a great old woman who happened to die last week. She was 92 years old. Her name was Hilda Helenby. She spent all her life in the North working with Native peoples, working for feminist rights, working in that strange world for a socialist dream that she had. Hilda Helenby used to say, she wasn't as good on the philosophy of reason as our colleagues. She didn't talk as they do about Kant and Plato and Bergson and Heraclitus. She wasn't good at that.
but she was good at saying things. And what Hilda Hellaby said, and I heard her, she said, you know why I do it? When in doubt, take the losing side. The winners don't need us. They're doing fine. That's all the socialism's ever meant. That's what it's all about. It's the basis. <laughs> it's the basis of a creed that is noble, of a dream that is warm and glorious, and it is as, as true to the bright side of the human soul as man and women have ever invented. I take it that I cannot enjoin a certain number of you in this room to share that dream with us tonight, but some I believe you will, and I hope you do. Thank you very much. The debate portion of the evening has ended. The floor will be open for the question period after a 10-minute break. When you come back, please line up at the two microphones on the floor uh, in the left and right-hand aisles. Paper and pencil will be provided by the ushers on the floor. Thank you very much. We'll see you in 10 minutes. Now, we'll start. The question period uh, will begin. The questions are to be directed to either or both of the two sides, not to the individual speakers. This will ensure that your questions receive the best possible answer. The sides will decide among themselves who will answer it. Answers are limited to two minutes each, and the opposition will then have two minutes to comment on the answer. I will call for questions from the floor mics alternately, starting with the right microphone. And I'd like to say that uh, while I'll tolerate a small amount of speech making from uh, the questioners, I'm not going to allow people to get into long policy statements. Uh, we really would like to have questions. So we'll start on the right. The question is directed towards both sides. My name is Kevin Nightingale. Um, given that the crucial points made by both sides are indeed valid, that is that capitalism is naturally the more productive and honest system, and that socialism is the more humane in whatever basic primal or emotional way, I ask you whether um, either extreme is indeed advisable. Socialism, in the name of equality, would see basically us starve to death. And starvation is not moral, Dr. Kaplan. And socialism is never democratic. True capitalism, in the name of individual excellence, may drive a desperate few into the hands of a Hitler, or a Lenin, or an Ellsworth Tuohy. By calling it revolution, I leave no room for equivocation. Yes, it is moral blackmail, but morality is defined over humanity, and revolution is not moral either. Okay, okay, let's have a the question. The question is, firstly, can you, can you defend a system where we kill the goose that lays the golden egg, or a system where the only egg some get is on their faces even if it isn't from a marketing board, is, is then a basically, substantially, fundamentally free enterprise system tempered slightly to accommodate those who are less capable than ourselves, the only morally defensible system. I'll take Alright, you turn me? That question translates into why go to extremes? Why not take the middle of the road, a little capitalism and a little socialism? Can you hear? Uh, there are issues on which you cannot compromise. 
contrary to what uh, Dr. Vickers said, Aristotle did not say all things in moderation. He did not believe that axe murdering should be committed in moderation. <laughs> or that you should have a balance between food and poison. If it has been established that certain principles are required for human life, you cannot say, let us temper them with a little bit of their opposite. All you will do in such a case is subvert the principle and lead step by step to the complete extreme opposite. This is why I said that a middle of the road mixed economy welfare state such as we have now is an unstable mixture which will gradually get more and more in the direction of complete government control. I do not believe, by the way, that, that quote, being humane is an attribute of a socialist system. If being humane means being concerned with man, with woman, with the rights and the welfare of human life, then I think the argument is 100% pro-capitalism. So I don't see that there even is a temptation uh, to compromise. That, that's brief. Okay. Sure, it's certainly true that in philosophy classes, uh, you take extreme positions. Uh, it's also true that in real life, uh, you try and develop the best mix that you can. I'm a democratic socialist, and for me, the only tolerable method is the method of persuasion. It seems to me that the sort of lurching that we have proceeded with in the Canadian context is the test case. It's the test case for me, not just because I'm a Canadian, it's a test case for a lot of other people to look at. Politics is the art of the possible, and it involves compromise. I think we have an ability to learn from other people's mistakes, whether they're to the south of the border or to the north of the border. On the left-hand side now. Yes, um, my name is Susan Rosenthal. I'm a physician in Toronto and a member of the International Socialists, and I have a question for the, uh, the uh, uh, pro-socialist side. Um, I can certainly agree that capitalism is neither a moral or rational system when the most productive um, uh, development of society that has ever existed in the world is used to uh, produce means of destruction instead of providing what people need. But on the other hand, I also don't see how what you're offering is any real alternative. Um, it seems to me that what you're offering is a more ben benevolent form of capitalism. Capitalism with a more humane face, but capitalism nonetheless and that it's not, that, that in fact social, socialism is not about state control at all. It's about who controls the state. And uh, as far as I understand, socialism is about ordinary working people controlling society, about working people taking control of their workplaces and running society to, in order to meet human needs. Um, and I haven't heard anything about that tonight. And that's what I'd like to hear in, in a debate about socialism versus capitalism. Well, I think you're right, and I, I accept your, uh, your analysis. We are not, goes back to the first question, we are not an extremist form of socialism because both Jill and I, insisting that socialism without democracy is not socialism, necessarily work within a democratic sphere in which it is impossible to go beyond certain bounds. Those bounds are where you can go through reason, through persuasion, through the ballot box, through running a good election campaign, through trying street socialism, you can do that, but it's a long way from the kind of utopian ideal that many of us would like, but is very hard in practice to implement. 
And so, yes, we agree, we are, we are moderates, we necessarily go slowly, more slowly, you will be thrilled to know, than we ever want to go, and that's the way it has to be in this parliamentary country. Uh, is mine working? Can you hear me? Uh, first of all, I'd like to comment on the remark made in the question about the uh, problem with capitalism being that it leads to the development of mass means of destruction. In fact, the capitalist social system, as we've been arguing for it, is concerning itself, the government is concerning itself with the protection of the rights of its citizens. If capitalist social system lives or coexists in a world with other social systems that are, first of all, totally devoted to the imprisonment and slaughter of their own citizens, and also devoted to the imprisonment and the slaughter of the citizens of other countries that they can get away with it, the capitalist countries have no choice and would be immoral of them not to arm themselves to the teeth in order to protect their citizens from that kind of threat. With regards to the question about the democratic socialists being moderates, uh, in the end, if an individual's right is violated by a tyrant, or if an individual's right is violated by the vote of the majority, the end result is still the same. Society has organized in order to use the state in order to violate the rights of individuals. And there is no, there is in the end no moral difference between being forced by a majority vote and forced by an elite group to hold the powers of government. The only solution is to create a social system where the powers of government are constitutionally restricted so that the government has no power to do such a thing, even if the majority of the people in uh, their misfound wisdom would wish them to do so. Yes, on the right-hand microphone. Sorry for interrupting you, Mr. Professor Atap. Um, I have two questions, one for each side. First to the socialists. I'd like to know why it is morally right for me to sacrifice the fruits of my labor to someone other than myself. I wouldn't say it was morally right for you to sacrifice all of the fruits of your labor. Where do you draw the line? I would certainly say that you live in a community in which other people have contributed to your well-being. Uh, does your mother do your laundry? <laughs> you know, there is this notion that you're a hard-balled individual with this shell, and that nobody helps you, that you do it all yourself. It's sort of like the 19th century, when men were men, and, and, and ladies still did the laundry. I don't think any of us lives in that context. Mine, if you're at school, which I suspect you may be, my tax dollars go to pay for your education, and I'm pleased that they do. Right on. I am pleased indeed that in our community, in our society, that it's possible for you and for me, it was possible for me to go to university even although my family couldn't afford it. Personally, I feel that I should give something back. And I hope you'll come to feel the same way, too.
in a capitalist society, you do not derive benefits from, quote, society as a whole, but from specific individuals who have done specific things. And there are mechanisms to determine exactly what it cost and how you compensate the person. You do not take general tax money, for instance, from people who have no children, extort it from them, and use it to pay schooling for people who do have children. Life is, is not a systematic raid on whatever you can grab off with the implication that you are then mortgaged as a serf for life to pay it back. As far as your mother is concerned, she has a moral obligation before she does your laundry. In fact, earlier than that, before she decides to conceive you, you did not ask to be conceived. She has to say to herself, this is a one-sided choice on her part. You were not consulted. She has to say to herself, if I have this kid, it's going to mean 21 years of doing laundry. <laughs> is, it, is it worth it to me or not? Do I regard the pleasures involved as sufficient payment? And if she says no, I would say do not have children. But the moral practical proper attitude is not to say I resent doing it but I'll do it bitterly as a sacrifice for 21 years and then the kid will be a slave for life to repay me I don't believe that parenthood consists of breeding slaves I, no, I'm, I'm afraid I, I'm going to be very rigid about one question per questioner. There are lots of people lined up, and I'm only going to get through a fraction of them. So I'm going to go over to the left-hand microphone. One, one question per questioner, please. Yes, yeah, so this is for the, the uh, capitalists. I'm curious about your concept of reality. Um, <laughs> I mean, what happens if you're just an average family growing up and you happen to have a mentally handicapped child. You didn't plan on one, but it came along. You don't have any money, so I guess we'll just throw it in the garbage and pretend it doesn't exist. Um, I wonder what happens in the case of a Canadian Indian who's kind of hanging out there, you know, doing whatever he's doing. These white guys come along and go, hey, you can't do that. You know, I mean, just because you have money and own something, does that mean that you forget about everybody else? Okay, sorry, I blew it. We'll make the statement. Uh, the question is... <laughs> what are you going to do about the people who don't have the money to afford certain medical, educational things? Are you just going to forget about them and just let them do whatever? Well, I think that we covered that, but I'll answer it again briefly. You either have to believe that human beings by and large and in the majority can survive by their own effort or that the whole human race is congenital incompetence, handicapped and helpless. If the latter is true, there is no such thing as human survival. If it's possible for the human race to survive at all, and it is, it has to be because the normal case is an individual who is not handicapped or mentally retarded or run over by a truck who is able to afford the things that his life requires when he becomes an adult and becomes productive. <laughs> In the case, a 
as I was about to say, I thought that happened, I was told that happened only in the United States, not in Canada. <laughs> in the case of people who are handicapped and in difficulty through no fault of their own, they depend upon private charity. That is it. There is no, I do not regard that, such a thing as a handicap, as a mortgage on anybody else's life. I myself would voluntarily give to charity if I thought the person didn't create his own handicap. Uh, I would on the ground that it's not. But I oppose on principle the idea that a social system is to be defined by what happens to the handicapped. The social system has to be defined by the nature of man. And when, only when that question has been answered and you lay down the principles that a healthy human being requires to function, do you say the surplus will voluntarily be given to those relatively small group of people who are helpless through no fault of their own? As far as medical care is involved, Try to remember that we do not have capitalism now and the fantastic escalating costs, particularly for people who are unemployed, is not a phenomenon of capitalism but of the mixed economy. The two last questions come together, in fact, I think. I want to just pick up. Sorry, can you hear? I wanted to pick up Jill's point for a second. Uh, we are an interdependent community, as I see it. We're sitting in this hall tonight because the government on money to the University of Toronto. When you go home today, and when you go home today, you're going to perhaps take a taxi that's inspected by the uh, Metropolitan Toronto Licensing Commission. It's also paid for by taxpayers' money. In every part of our life, each of us benefits and is affected by the structure that's been built in this society. And we come, that may be the problem, but you'd be a lot unhappier without that problem. I've been in places that don't have that problem. And in return, in return, you have the right to expect that you owe somebody something. And I want to tell you, there are most people in the hall, I tell from the applause, we know this, who don't believe it, who don't share this, and I don't care, but I think what John Ridpath and I think what Dr. Peacock are talking about is such an ugly and mean and heartless system. It is such, it is such a throwback to that 19th century Dickensian world that one of these guys lauded as the, uh, as the apotheosis of capitalism earlier when in fact life was miserable and scummy for most people, that I am thrilled to know that this is a very narrow extremist fringe of the right movement and that most of its advocates are in this room tonight. That gives me hope. <laughs> that gives me hope that this kind of miserable way of wanting to run a world will not prevail much beyond where it goes in this room. This question is directed to, the, uh, to both sides. <clears throat> the morality of the ultimate socialist system may be seen in facts. One fact may be seen in the Robarts Library, where now is displayed the artificial famine of 1932 and 33. Could you, could you get a little closer to the microphone and talk a little louder? So okay. One of these facts is displayed in the Robarts Library, where now is displayed 
the artificial famine of 1932 and 33 in Ukraine where 7 million people died. This genocide is the, was a deliberate public and political policy of the communist government in Moscow. It was a policy to remove those who did not, by their lifestyle, agree with their own policy. It was also a policy that removed food from the farmer and was used in, in international trade to acquire money to enhance Moscow, the protector of ultimate socialism. How is this consistent, this genocide consistent with morality? Is this the morality which we are to expect from future socialism and its ultimate heir, communism? I guess this is a highly mobile audience because I guess most of you weren't in the room when I talked about our socialist view of communism earlier. I could talk to you about the Kulak murders for hours and tell you things you know nothing about. I can tell you about the horrors of the communist empire for hours, things you know nothing about. A democratic socialist is raised on it, is raised on it so that he or she knows not to have a confusion between a tyranny of a new kind in the Eastern world and something that's called socialism. It has nothing to do with anything any democratic socialist believes, tolerates, or will ever accept. Uh, I would like to start by saying that I would not and I will not now accuse any individual unless I have hard evidence of being an advocate or a supporter of that kind of mass slaughter. And I don't wish to, in my remarks to say that I think that uh, our opponents are in fact endorsing that kind of thing. But your question is, is this kind of genocide consistent with the morality of socialism? Is this the ultimate end of socialism? In my view, even though the democratic socialists believe that the uses to which the coercive powers of the state will be put will be limited by the majority and that they will not vote for the state to do such things. They are nevertheless endorsing the morality of altruism, of self-sacrifice, and they are endorsing coerced solutions to problems and in endorsing those principles, even though they may not wish it to be the case and they may not believe it to be the case, that they are nevertheless in the camp with principles that do lead to those results, I'm afraid. Yes, on the left. Uh, yeah, this question is uh, referred to the capitalists. Uh, look at the third word where the capitalism isn't working at all. Uh, Could you get a little uh, closer to the mic? Look at the third world where your capitalism isn't working at all. You're, uh, the people, you said the people cannot exist without any property, and I agree with that. What happens to the people who uh, aren't born into wealth? You say they have to get their own wealth, and how they get their own wealth? By motivation. Where do they get the motivation? From energy. Energy requires food. Food requires money. They're not born into money. How are they going to get it? Well, you could address that question to the people who lived in the caves. 
and how did they get out of the caves. The way people get out of those situations is by the very process that you talked about. It's a long, and slow, and arduous process to earn your way in life and to raise your standard of living. You know, in a sense, the thrust of your question is comparable to the thrust of an earlier question, which actually boils down to, under capitalism, what happens to the poor? And basically, what I'd like to say is that there is a moral premise implicit in that very question when you ask it. Implicitly, you are expecting that when you point out the existence of the poor, that I will automatically understand that I have some moral obligation to sacrifice some of my values, some of my property, some of my energies, so that they may be better, uh, better off. We have argued for rational egoism, for the virtue of rational selfishness. We reject that very morality. It is also that morality which is behind Professor Kaplan's remarks that our view is mean, heartless, ugly, and miserable. Our view, you're welcome to your own opinion, but all I'm pointing out is that if it, is auto, it is automatic to you that our view is uh, such as that. The reason for that is because you are captured by 2,000 years of Judeo-Christian morality, which actually endorses the principle of self-sacrifice. And from that perspective, you would view what we are saying as ugly and miserable, etc. But from the argument that we have made with regards to the needs of human life and how that applies to every individual, we are arguing that the facts of human nature in fact dictate that men are individuals, they each have to use their minds, they own their own lives, and nobody has a moral right to use their lives for their own purposes. I'm not ashamed to say I'm a Christian any more than I think that Jerry would in any way want to disassociate himself from his religious background. I have to say to the young men that your question has made the debate for me. Uh, it gives me hope. I picked that up, McLean's, four and a half million poor in Canada. That's what's before us. That's what we can't not see if we have any eyes at all. But your question points to all of the millions that we can't see, that we don't see very often. I think morality is involved in El Salvador and in all of the countries of the third world. I think it's very convenient for us if we can export our exploitation, our sex tourism. That we can export the effects of our capitalist system into the rest of the world. And I'm delighted to know that there is someone who sees that they're there. The next questioner is at the microphone on my right. First of, first of all, may I make a statement instead of a question? A short statement, short statement, and then maybe a question. As long as it's short, and yeah. as long as it ends in a question. Okay, yes. first of all, I'm offended by the morality of the debate itself. We presume that socialism is what it's supposed to mean and not what is meant in the mind of so many people. So, in other words, socialism is connected with gulag, 
uh, Ukraine famine or whatever. And capitalism is meant with uh, the you know the 19th century starvation of the masses. Okay, that's not what I came here for. That's I came here for the moral, for simple for the, the moral aspect of it. And on the, I'm going to talk about the morality. Uh, <laughs> my question is, he, the pr professor, he should not be called a professor because in, uh, in the realm of an animal, maybe you can be professor, but in, in the realm of a human being, cannot be professor on anything, or anything. The capitalist side there, the capitalist side, especially the one who said, the one who said that life, uh, morality, uh, morality is defined by the rational self interest or self uh, self interest okay i would like to only to to no, beg I, him to to carry that to the extreme consequences no, no, I, want, I want i want the question though in california now no, I, want, I want the question mother are selling their children to for self interest for pornography right now i will i wish why is mother didn't sell him for pornography? That's the question. Why, he, if it, life is determined by self-interest, why is mother is not is didn't sell him for pornographic industry? Okay. <clears throat> I'm sorry to say that the I'm sorry to say that the hysteria and the form in which that question was asked is a direct result of the fact that people put forth the ethics of self-sacrifice on religious grounds as though it's a revelation. Consequently, people do not even believe that moral issues can be open to reason, and if they disagree, they resort to vilification and apoplexy. That is a, a sign of a wrong approach to the entire subject of ethics. If I translate that question, I'll do what I want with my two minutes, please. No, you, no, you, no, no. You, 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 you had the floor, and the speaker must have the floor. If I were to translate that question into something resembling intelligibility. <laughs> say he's asking are you saying that an advocate of selfishness can do anything do you believe whatever you feel you should do regardless of how it runs roughshod over other people and if he had asked the question that way he would have seen that I already answered that by saying that selfishness does not equal doing whatever you feel like you might feel like cutting your throat or jumping off a cliff that does not make it something which redounds to your self-interest your self-interest has to be objectively, rationally defined. It has to be in accordance with the requirements of your nature. And it has to respect the equal right of every other human being. I said over and over, selfishness is not running loose like some kind of monster. That is simply the movie image put forth by altruists in order to try to dismiss this issue. Selfishness is a perfectly rational, if you are rational, you live to achieve your life by certain definite means, you respect the rights of others and you trade. That's it. You want to do this? I don't know what you're talking about. I I'm, I'm sorry that the, uh, that the questioner got a little carried away. I'm even more sorrier that uh, 
Professor Tykoff was so snot-nosed to him, and I apologize to you for that. I want to say... <laughs> uh, I'm going I'm to exert the chairman's prerogative in a minute. <laughs> I, as far as I can figure out, a selfishness that is bound only by my own rational decisions as to what its limits are is a selfishness that allows me to do anything I want, in fact, because I'm the only arbitrator. Gosh, it's really nice. Not only do I have him, I have all of you moaning at the same time. It's really terrific. But it is, in fact, it is, in fact, what the speakers repeat time after time, there is no other force, there is no other arbitrator to stop me from making those decisions other than my own rational processes. And as long as that's so, I assume that ultimately it means I can do whatever I want. Now, because they are sophisticated, they know they will not do anything too bad, except cut off all these people from welfare and social service and all the other things they will do. Uh, so, so the argument, I, I confess, eludes me, and it has never seemed quite as persuasive as, as many of you self-evidently appear it to be. Yes, on the left. Yes, my question uh, is going to sound dangerously similar to the one before me, except that I don't think that the question or the answer in that case really addressed the issue. It's addressed to the capitalists. I basically understand where you are. I accept the position, except for one thing. Why is inherited wealth part of your morality? Wouldn't it not be better to investigate systems of wealth dis redistribution upon death rather than allowing huge conglomerates to build up so that the small man from Parkdale South is in a position where he effectively can't compete against number 10 Toronto Street in any meaningful way? Just as, just as a small addendum, I'll say that I agree with you that a man is entitled to the fruits of his labor. I'm not so sure that he's entitled to the fruits of his father's labor. As a starting uh, point. Who is the issue is, what is the father entitled to? The issue in connection with inherited wealth is, what are the rights of the people who earned that wealth, including their rights to give that wealth to whomever they choose? And that is the focus, rather than the alleged unfair, unfair head start or whatever on the part of the child. It is the case when you worry about inherited wealth, many people who worry about inherited wealth uh, worry that, in a sense, unworthy people inherit wealth and in a sense have a free ride generation after generation they see something unfair in that. The, the fact of the matter is that uh, at least in a free society the people who inherit wealth who are not themselves rational and productive and uh, entrepreneurial people that those people will lose the wealth that they have inherited. There is an expression there is there is an expression which was which was typical of 19th century America, which was the freest period in human history, which was shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. And that meant the first generation made the money, passed it to the second generation, and by the third generation, the money had gone to more worthy hands, and they were back to shirt sleeves again. But the essential moral issue with regards to inheritance is that the people who earn it have the right to dispose of it as they choose. It's their right to do that. And that's why it's moral. You know, I heard the uh, 
the Get shirt sleeves uh, quip this morning from Professor Takeoff, it didn't grab me then, it doesn't grab me now, quite simply because it isn't true. Uh, it's from shirt sleeves, yes, by hard work that I will agree with in many instances. Uh, then it's up to uh, three-piece suits, uh, then it's up to uh, wind collars and rather large establishments of conglomerates. I think you put your finger, uh, perhaps unwittingly and perhaps deliberately, on a very important point. I would be far more persuaded of the ethic uh, that I'm, I'm hearing uh, if I thought that the monopoly game wasn't rigged. It's quite clear the monopoly game is rigged. Not everybody gets uh, $200 when they pass go. And a whole lot of people have uh, quite a lot of lolly in the bank before they start the game. What's more, some people have uh, uh, obstacles to jump that others don't, and some have uh, shackles of one kind or another that they're forced to carry. The imagery of, 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 of life as a race uh, when you have inherited property in the middle of the race uh, certainly doesn't sound very fair to me. I agree. My question is directed to Dr. Pekoff on the capitalist side. Uh, I would, I conclude from part of this discussion that Orwell has uh, retained some of his apostles in his contradiction of terms and words. Your pursuit, Dr. Park Pikoff, in the uh, building of selfishness, no, in the survival to build, uh, your pursuit of survival is built on selfishness, contradicts any claim to a peaceful intellectual pursuit uh, to achieve objectives in a peaceful way. Hitler perfected this. Uh, you, your out was that you uh, lumped national socialism with uh, international socialism. Uh, Hitler saw that his uh, next step was uh, national socialism, which would have pinnacled the power that he had already accumulated on the personal and national basis. All right, I'll take that. All right, would you not agree? I got it. Would you not agree? Somebody said next question or uh, question. Uh, would you not agree that uh, laws are uh, are a matter of degrees? That is, socialism is attempting to pursue the laws for a greater percentage of equality, not equality, but a greater percentage of equality, which would include capitalism. And this is the area in which capitalism is resenting. Uh, if we if we backtrack on that, the underworld resents the laws that we now have. So I would say that uh, capitalism's arguments against uh, further pursuit of laws is is not valid. Well, I have to ignore the last part because I don't know what you're talking about. But the first part I would like to comment on: selfishness, as a term simply means that the recipient of the values you create should be yourself. It leaves entirely open the question, what values should you aim to pursue and by what means should you achieve them? And if you had any rudimentary knowledge of the history of ethics, there are many egoists of all kinds of different varieties. And it's very uncommon for them to have the kind of view that is caricatured in your, in your statement. 
There's nothing in the idea, I should pursue my interest, to say I should pursue it by means of cutting your throat or violating the canons of peace. There is no such thing, particularly when you hold, as I do, that the only essential means that human beings have to deal with reality or achieve values is thought, is the mind, and that, that, that all of human life depends on the sanctity and absolutism of the mind. If you hold that, you would shudder in the name of self-interest against any form of coercion or non-peace against others. You would do it for your own self-interest. As far as Hitler goes, I I'd like to say I happen to have made a very lengthy study of the Nazi ethical viewpoint. And the Nazis are thorough, ideological, explicit champions of altruism and self-sacrifice. If you want detailed quotes, from Hitler, Goebbels, Goering, the whole hierarchy, you look up my book and you will see that they define the Aryan as the supreme exponent of self-sacrifice. They equate the ideal Nazi as the one who gives up everything, not only his wealth, but his mind, his independent judgment to the Fuhrer, and they preach universal sacrifice. All Germans were to sacrifice for the, for the master race, which was no one individual, it was a mythical, supernatural entity, and the whole rest of the world was to sacrifice. There was no one to be selfish. They were the opposite champions of selfishness. Thank you. The superior race. To hear, to hear that, that the Nazis believed in a kind of altruism and, sorry, to, to be told that the Nazis believed in a kind of altruism and self-sacrifice that in other parts of this evening we have been told is comparable to some of the things that us benighted socialists believe is, forgive me for a Jew, so offensive and so intolerable that I can't answer any more of that question. Excuse me, I'm Jewish also for what it's worth. Not much. Now, I, uh, I'm not going to impose on the panel uh, too much longer, or on so, at least some members of the audience. I'm going to take two more questions only, uh, one from this side and one from that side. And it's, uh, it starts with the one on the left. Before I commence, I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Matthew Marshall. I'm a capitalist, and I wash my own underwear. <laughs> I'd like to address this question to both panels. But first of all, I'd like to give the socialists a ch chance to rebuttal. Mr. Kaplan, did I understand you to say, morality, has real pe morality is defined as how real people operate in the real world? Uh, yes. Okay. We want to deal with the real world. If we look at the nations of the world, those who have enshrined the value of property rights are the ones who have had the greatest economic advancement and the masses have benefited the most. Okay? We haven't agreed to everything yet. Okay, I just want to finish my question first, okay? We like the underwear, though. Okay. Now, socialism, as I know it, is concerned with the welfare of the community, which itself is a very doable idea and I don't disagree with. But... As being a socialist, and empirical observation demonstrates in countries that respect property rights are the countries that have the greatest wealth for everyone. 
as a socialist, and this empirical truth is evident, how can you, as a socialist, disagree with property rights? Well, I, I guess I don't accept all of your facts, you know, strangely enough. Seems to me that among the countries, sorry, it seems to me that among the countries that support property rights are Argentina, are Chile, are are Uruguay, are Pakistan, are a dozen African countries which have property rights written into their constitution and which work hand in glove with corporate interests and the local elites to oppress and cause misery for their people. Now, why is that so difficult for this audience to understand? They are there before you. So spare me your stuff. You just don't know what you're talking about. That's why I don't accept property rights in the way you talk about it. We accept property rights. God, have there not been social democratic governments in this country and in Western Europe in the way that any sensible person does? Was there confiscation? Did shopkeepers lose their stores? Did businesses get taken away without proper compensation? Did anyone lose a house? No, they did not. Those were lost. Those were lost in the capitalist-created depression of the 30s. Those were lost. Those were lost in the capitalist-created recession of the last three years. That's when people lost homes and shops and businesses. So spare me, please. in Orwellian language. I've spent over a year studying the evolution of the concept of man's rights. I went to length to explain in my remarks tonight that the principle of rights is in essence a principle which acknowledges that each man is an end in himself and must be morally regarded as being an end in himself and therefore must be treated by others voluntarily through trade and through contract and never through the use of force. To say that property rights can lead to oppression and statism and Nazism is just totally contradictory and just ignores everything we've been saying tonight. And as a matter of fact, it, uh, I must comment that uh, Dr. Vickers uh, said that uh, she wasn't very happy with the ethics she was kept hearing from this side of, of the, the uh, platform. Well, I want to say that I wished I'd heard an ethic coming from the other side of the platform. <laughs> But I, but I never did. I never did hear one word why it is that I, as an individual, must be forced to live my life for anybody else. I never heard that justified in the whole evening. And I'm sad to say, therefore, I think they failed to fulfill the demands of the debate. This is the last, one. This, this is the last question. I'd just like to say that uh, people voted for Hitler, and also the thing about wealth is that, it, yes, it's very true that it's hard to earn wealth, but it's also more true that it's harder to hang on to it once you've earned it. Um, I'd like to ask Dr. Kaplan um, if he believes that the state is responsible for creating wealth and for distributing it, then why didn't some state 300 years ago create a law that said we're going to uh, build everybody cars and give them insulated homes. Or as a matter of fact, why don't third world countries do that today? Just decree a law that says 
we're going to create all this wealth to distribute. Um, Dr. Vickers uh, asked a question, uh, why do the poor stay poor? And a, and a large hush fell over the, the crowd. And, and I would like to say that if there's any amount of freedom in the country, and this is the key, is the amount of freedom in a country, the poor stay poor because they earn it. Um, <laughs> the one, one, thing, one thing the socialists never uh, answer um, is who's going to pay the deficits. And the other point I'd like to You're mention is to that in Canada... The speaker's questions, they're supposed to be answering yours. <laughs> in Canada, we already have no, lost 50% of our freedom because when you are allowed to be taxed at a rate of 50% on your personal income, uh, money is only a commodity which allows you to buy your freedom. Okay, and let's have the questions. Come on. If you're taxed, then you've lost let's, that let's amount of freedom. Let's have the questions. That's it. Thank oh. you. <laughs> I just, my question was, will Dr. Kaplan please explain why states just don't create uh, decree laws that create wealth? Well, of course, it's, uh, it's uh, Professor Ridpath, who's an economist, and I guess, I suppose something about inflation and the false creation of extra money has something to do with it, but that's not the serious answer at all. The serious answer is that Western capitalism grew up through the 17th, 18th, 19th, and much of the 20th century by being able to batten on and feed off the countries you're talking about, you see. They managed to make us rich by making that third world even poorer than it was. And what that... And the real problem... And the real problem, you see, of that third world is it now has no one to exploit as we exploited them. Now, I, I, want, I, wa I want to make an offer to this, uh, to this generous and open-minded uh, audience. I want you to send me your names, and I will send you book lists dozens and dozens of pages long of p books written by very serious people, not necessarily crazy as Jill and I are, who will tell you that what I said is right. And that's a serious offer. And if you write me, I will send you the books. And if you will read it, you will see that I'm right. But you won't write me, and you won't read the books, because you don't want to know anything other than what you believe. Well, the socialist side to the bitter end insists that wealth is achieved by robbery rather than by creation. And the question becomes, where did it originally come from? Now, when they landed on this continent, there were not skyscrapers. <coughs> there was no wealth. It was completely barren. You cannot possibly hold in your mind the idea that there's a fixed amount of wealth there's like a dozen eggs or 10 trillion, whatever. And whoever got some took, got it by taking it out of the common pot because the overwhelming majority of what we have, everything beyond grabbing a piece of fruit that falls off a tree, had to be created by somebody's thought and effort. To ascribe wealth to exploitation is entirely to deny the crucial fact. Wealth is a product of the human mind. The poor in those countries which are poor and which are endemically poor are so, not because there's anything wrong with them, but because their social system is, be is what ours is becoming. 
it thwarts, inhibits, and prevents the exercise of the individual, of creativity, of the entrepreneur. And the result is they do an unthinking routine century after century. If you really weren't concerned about the third world and you wanted them to become very wealthy, I would say let American investment go there and you would suddenly see that would be because that would, that would develop those countries and would spread the wealth around. But if you close them out, if you keep it a preserve of simply the backward and the dictatorial, they're going to be poor forever. Thank you very much. No, I'm, no, I'm afraid, I, I, no, I'm afraid that's it. Or I'm going to lose the panel. I think we've had a good discussion tonight. Lots of uh, thought to chew on and just the right amount of nastiness. I'd like to thank the panelists uh, on your behalf. I'd like to thank uh, the audience for its enthusiasm. And I'd like to say that uh, we mentioned 1984 at the beginning of the discussion. One of the reasons why, I guess, we're not living in 1984 is the type of discussion that we've had tonight. Thank you very much. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.